Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Well, if you are a visitor with us to Cross Lane, uh, I want to be hopefully not the first. Hopefully someone's already stuck out a hand and told you that they were glad you're here, but um, welcome to Cross Lane. You, you honor us with your presence, and uh, uh, it's a real joy to have you. Um, already got one service down. We had a church service this morning at 7.30 in the morning. I'm not even sure if that's legal in some states, but, but we, um, we did one, and uh, welcome to our 9 o'clock service. We're in the middle of a series, actually wrapping it up today. It's a series called The Myth, and the idea behind The Myth is that there's this, this thing that people think. Whenever you start thinking about, am I going to go to heaven, and what does heaven look like, and how do you get there, uh, the myth is that if I'm just a good person, I'll go to heaven. And so we've spent some time over the last several weeks trying to, trying to talk about and get people to understand that, um, that it's simply that. It's a myth. That is not how you get to heaven. And we've been trying to spend some time, and I'm going to talk about it some today, about what, what does get us there. But this idea that if, you know, if I can just be good enough, because the question that comes back when you hear that, well, you just be good to get into heaven. Well, how good? How good do I have to be? I mean, do, you know, do I have to go to church three times a month, two times a month? Um, do I have to give $50 a year, $50 a month? I mean, how much money do I have to give? Brett, how, what, what, um, what kind of things can I do and not do? I mean, there's, and so you can start asking all these questions based around or looking at this idea of how good is good enough, how good do I have to be to, to get God to say, you know, you're good enough to come into heaven. And what we've decided and what we keep saying is Jesus has done all of that part for us. That what we are is we are forgiven in Jesus. And if you've never given your life to Christ, that's really what it's about. It's about have you been forgiven by Christ? It's not a list of do's and don'ts. People think, well, you know, I don't want to go to church because I don't want the church to tell me all this list of things that I don't do very well. You're not going to hear me give you a list this morning. You're not going to hear me equate going to heaven with how good you are. You're not going to hear me talk about your performance and how bad you were last night or the night before, um, and how that relates in some way to you going to heaven. That is not the message this morning. The message is this. Jesus loves you, went to the cross, died to forgive you, and that gift is extended to even you. And you say, Brett, you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad it is. You may have done it last night. I don't know. I'm just telling you that nothing you've done is so bad that Jesus can't overcome it with his love and his grace. And so that's really the message over the last several weeks, and uh, today I want to kind of shift gears, and you know where I'm going, it's Easter Sunday, so you know we're going to talk about the resurrection, but I want to put it in context this morning, and I want, to, I want us to understand really the, the, the real um, significance behind it. One of the most difficult things about Christianity is that on the surface of Christianity, it can seem like a lot of wishful thinking. That hopefully when we die, it's all going to work out, and hopefully there's a God out there, and, you know, it's nice to think about a good God out there who lives in a good heaven, and he takes, you know, relatively good people to go live in that good heaven, and it's just kind of a sort of a wishful thinking kind of thing, or at least it can seem that way. And especially if you're in the marketplace, and if you talk about your faith in the marketplace at all, sometimes people can kind of give you the blank stare, like, you know, well, I'm glad that works for you. But, you know, here's what I believe. And then there's this tendency to think, and I think even if you're a Christian, um, and even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you, you can kind of get to this idea where you think that Christianity is just one of many 
world religions that there's really not all that much difference between them. You know, just kind of pick one, flavor of the month kind of thing. And you might hear people say, well, that works for you. This is what works for me. This is what my religion is. And how do you know you're right? And you say, well, um, you know, I, I, just, I just am. And, or, you know, mama told me or whatever, and it's in the Bible. And then they say, well, you know, who wrote the Bible? And you, you, then you really start going round and round and you go, you never get anywhere. And there's just this tendency to, to, to kind of throw Christianity in with all of the other world religions and, and so for those of us who are believers, we know that there's one special distinction between what we believe and what other people and other faiths believe, that most other religions believe that you have to do good things to go to heaven. We believe you can be bad and go to heaven, which makes me wonder why in the world doesn't everybody want to be a Christian? I mean, if that's the way that it's going to go down. Um, but this morning, we're going to talk about another huge distinction that I think gets given less credit than it is due, and we, we often overlook it in our attempt to be practical and our attempt to say, look, Christianity works. You know, we spend so much time trying to talk about the, the practical side of Christianity that, that the resurrection part kind of gets sometimes left behind. You know, we say things like, well, Christianity works for me before my faith. My marriage was horrible. Now, my, after I'm a Christian, my marriage is better, or before... I became a Christian, my kids were a mess, now I'm a Christian, now things are better, um, you know, finances better, relationship better, and we just want to talk about the practical side of it, and we, t- we tend to kind of pitch those kinds of things when we talk about Christianity, but there's a distinction that sets us apart as a world religion that we oftentimes don't focus on, and it is the primary distinctive, it is the thing. Now, don't throw anything at me just yet this morning and don't leave till I get done with all this because what I'm about to say may sound a little heretical at the beginning. Um, The foundation of our faith is not the teaching of Jesus Christ. You know, in other world religions, the foundation is always somebody's teaching. You know, this is, you know, I'm a follower of this particular religion and this is what this guy said or this is what this guy that started this cult or this religion said and they had a prophet who came and said all these wonderful things and I have their books and I follow their teachings and you know and you're a Christian and you had a prophet and um, he said some great things and he had some great teachings well that is not an accurate picture the foundation that we believe the foundation of what we believe and 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 why we're here to celebrate and why some of us give our money and why we teach and why we read books and the reason we do all of this is, is that the, the foundation is not the teaching of Jesus Christ. I think some people maybe think that. The foundation of Christianity is not anybody's teaching. That in and of itself sets us apart from other world religions because in other world religions, that's a really big deal. The foundation of Christianity is not a philosophy of life. You know, in some um, religions, there's, a, there's this philosophy and you kind of subscribe to that. Maybe you follow that for a while and then you get older and you're like, man, that's that's not kind of working for me anymore. I'm going to shift into this philosophy. And, you know, you may know some people in your life that have kind of embraced two or three different religions because the philosophies lined up with where they were at the time and they've kind of engaged and then disengaged and moved on. And, and, um, you know, they just kind of think that you subscribe to another philosophy just like them. And there's this tendency to want to lump Christianity into that group. But Christianity is not a philosophy of life or even a worldview or even an approach to life. The foundation of Christianity is not a country. 
Um, doesn't happen very often, but once in a while you'll run across somebody and the, the vibe you get from them is, well, I was born in America, so I must be a Christian. You know, that's kind of how it works. You, you're born here and you just kind of are by default. Well, you know, they, they would also think that if you're born in Israel, you're a Jew, and if you're born in another part of the country, you just kind of embrace whatever religion is prominent in that part of the country. That being a Christian has nothing to do with, with where you're born. That's one of the things that we would say this morning. It doesn't matter if you were born in America. That has nothing to do with being a Christian. And contrary to popular belief, the foundation of Christianity is not faith. If you're an unbeliever, if you are a non-Christian this morning or you're asking questions, one of the things that you probably struggle with, and, and you know, you'd say, you know, all my friends, they, they just believe. And they look at me and they say, you know, you just... You just got to believe. You just, you got to believe hard enough. You know, just believe. Close your eyes, squint real hard. Just believe. And, and you're like, that's not working for me. You know, that's, there's got to be more to it than that. You know, you'd say, Brett, that's kind of like me being hungry and getting in my car and wishing there was a McDonald's at the end of the driveway and going, I'm just, I'm going to believe that there's a McDonald's at the end of the driveway. That's not going to work. So if you're struggling with that, I've got some great news for you. And, and I think all of us have struggled with this whole faith thing from time to time the foundation of our christian faith is not faith it's not you know if you believe this is true if you believe it hard enough it's true if you if you believe hard enough that you believe it's true it's none of that the foundation of christianity and, and listen closely because this sets us apart from every other world religion the foundation of our faith is an event it is one event it happened one morning and it is one event. The whole thing hinges on, hangs on, rises or falls on, not the teaching or person of Christ, not the teachings of Christ, hang on, not even the death of Christ. A lot of people died. It wasn't the crucifixion. A lot of people have been crucified. The thing that all of this rises on, hinges on, is one event, and it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the foundational point of all that we are and all that we believe. The fact that it works well is not the foundation. That's just a benefit. The fact that you feel better off because you're a Christian is not the foundation. That's, that's great that, that you feel that way. It's not the fact that you had a warm, fuzzy feeling when you gave your life to Christ. It's not, you know, when you prayed the prayer that, man, I just, everything felt so good. It, 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 that's wonderful, too. But that is not the foundation. Those are just experiences. Those, that's the fallout of something bigger and deeper. The foundation, the reason that we're here, and the reason we celebrate. And this sets us apart in a magnificent way from all other world religions is because of one single solitary event that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now let me kind of paint a picture for you so, as to why that might be significant. And then we're going to look at a, a, a section of the Bible. If you want to turn ahead, I'm going to be in Acts chapter 3. And then we're going to scoot over to Acts 4, but begin at Acts chapter 3. You see, all the other world religions, when you, if you go toe-to-toe with people, and you, you know, it's this whole thing of, my God's bigger, and no, Jesus is smarter, and we kind of compare. And Here's why we can't even really compare. All the other world religions had a prophet or a group of people and basically what happened was eventually that person died or somebody, they were martyred and their disciples just kind of said, you know, keep the dream alive, keep the dream alive. And, you know, let's take these teachings to these people and, 
and let's spread them throughout the world because our prophet, our leader, was so in tune with God and he knew so much and we've got to keep the dream alive. And so when those prophets or leaders died or were martyred, their disciples went out and tried to spread their teachings. You know what Jesus' followers did when he was martyred? They went fishing. They were so overwhelmed and discouraged that, you know, they followed this guy around for three years. They, they, at first, they huddled together, scared to death that they were going to be next. When they crucified Jesus, these guys did not know what to do. They were pretty freaked out. And, and uh, you know, this wasn't a keep the dream alive moment for the disciples. It was more of a let's huddle together and keep us alive movement is really what it was. And they said, hey, but eventually they come to the place where they say, you know, we got to we got to make a living. I mean, nobody's going to give us money. Just come up and give us money. we got to go out and, and, um, and drum up a living. So they go back to fishing. And in their mind, it's game over. The charade is over. You know, obviously, in their mind, they're looking at Jesus and they're going, you know, maybe, maybe he was a fraud. You know, this, they, they didn't go out and do what most believers do when it's just an idea that they want to keep alive, you know, or a dream that they're trying to keep alive. See, Christianity wasn't launched from the teachings of Christ. It wasn't launched from the crucifixion of Christ. Because after the crucifixion, the whole thing died. The Pharisees are like, you know, finally, we got rid of this guy. The religious leaders are happy that they've finally been able to kill Jesus. And the disciples are scared for their life. And they finally have to go out and get real jobs because in their mind, game over. So see, here's the problem. If Jesus had just taught good things... You know, if Jesus had just said, hey, okay, now, this is how you get to God, that would have been okay. If he just said, here's how you, you, you know, you get forgiven, that would have been fine. Here's how you love one another, that would have been great. If he had just stayed on those subjects and stayed on some safe ground, things would have been okay. But, but you know, that's not the kind of teaching that Jesus did. Jesus went too far. Jesus said things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you know, he said things like, I and the Father are one, to which people went, oh. You know, it was Jesus that said, I'm the only way to God. If you want to get to God, you have to come through me, to which we would say, Jesus, really? I mean, aren't you painting us into a pretty tight corner there? I mean, isn't that pretty exclusive? I mean, what are you, like 5'9", 160 pounds soaking wet? I mean, the whole thing hinges on, you got, we got to get to God through you? I mean, come on, Jesus, there's got to be more to it than that. See, Jesus compared himself to God, equated himself to God. Everybody understood his claim to be God. And then he says, and by the way, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again in three days. So here's the problem. He made it so clear, he was so specific, and he had such a tightly wound argument and philosophy, and he so closely aligned himself with God so as to be God, that when he died... The dream died. And the, the disciples are looking at this and they're going, you know, obviously this was a hoax. He must have been a fraud because this whole thing seems to be over. There's, there's no rally. There's no keep it alive kind of thing going on with these guys. Why keep it alive? It all seemed to have died with him. Everything he said must have been a lie. You know, people on the outside looking in would have had the thought, you know, how could God allow his hands to be tied behind his back and taken off and thrown in jail? How could God allow himself to be carried off and eventually 
crucified, not just crucified, but to be killed in, a, in such a humiliating public way. God wouldn't allow that kind of thing to happen. Game over, guys. It's, it's, we're done. You know, they would have been saying things to themselves like, we were fooled. We got duped. He's not who we thought he was. I mean, when the crucifixion happened, these guys would have basically been to a place where they were ready to throw their hands up and walk away just in dismay, saying, you know, I don't understand. He's not what we thought he was. There is no comparison to how Christianity got started and the beginning of every other world religion that you can think of. But then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And that bunch of cowardly head for the hills, forget it, it's all over, you know, it's a hoax kind of guys, they went out and they turned the world upside down. Now listen, because this is key. If we just went home after this, this would be enough. They went out and they turned the world upside down and here we are 2,000 years later still meeting in rooms, lining up in rows, listening to somebody talk about this person named Jesus. Not because of the miracles that Jesus performed, because after the miracles, you know, they still gave up. They huddled together in a room, and then eventually they just kind of split up and went different directions. Not because he died on a cross, because after the crucifixion, that still didn't ignite those men. What sent them out with their hearts on fire was that they had seen a dead man walking. He rose from the dead. And overnight, and I'm telling you, if you're not a Christian, you've you got to kind of focus in on some facts here because this will help maybe push you to, to the edge to at least take a little better look in terms of faith. Overnight, thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem, and I'm talking about in the heart of Jerusalem, thousands of Jewish people overnight abandoned hundreds of years of heritage and embraced Christianity. Not because they'd heard a good sermon, because the sermons were over, not because they saw Jesus die. They had seen Jesus, they'd seen people die before. That wasn't new. But thousands, as we are going to see from Scripture, thousands abandoned everything they believed and everything that they had been taught to some extent, and they embraced Christianity overnight because of an event that was so undeniably true that you'd have to be a fool to pretend that it didn't happen. Hundreds of people were walking around through Jerusalem going, you know, I saw him, I'm telling you, he was dead, and I saw him alive, and you can't change my mind about that. Overnight, thousands of people, and, and, and you know, they're going around saying all this stuff, and it caused such a political disturbance, as we're going to see in a minute, Rome gets involved in this thing, and these religious leaders get involved in it, something happened, you know, and these cowardly men who've huddled together and been afraid that they were going to be next, these men that had followed Jesus, these are the same guys that wouldn't even stand next to the cross because they didn't want to be seen there. These are the same men that, that denied that they'd walked with or talked to or knew Jesus. These same men went out and changed the world. You've got to ask yourself, what happened to cause that? And that happened not because of a teaching, not because of a sermon, not because of a philosophy, not because of persuasive speech, not because somebody died, but because, because they'd all seen somebody die. But this happened because they had seen a dead man walking. Jesus rose from the dead. And everything we are and everything that we believe hinges not on a teaching, not on a thought, not on philosophy, principle, or insight. It hinges on a singular event in history. And that means 
our system is radically different than everybody else's system. So if you're here this morning and you're like, you know, I'm going to come see what the whole Jesus thing's about. I've kind of looked at this philosophy and I've looked at this religion. I'm here to tell you this morning, the way we approach faith and, and the re- what our faith is built on is different than any other world religion you're going to encounter or evaluate. So just for a few minutes, I don't want you to worry about what Jesus said. Listen, when a guy can raise from the dead, I don't really care what he taught. I'm with him. You know, I mean, that's just kind of what, you know, you were dead, you predicted it, you were alive, and you predicted that, sign me up. I'm with you. You know, when you tell me that you're going to raise from the dead and you actually do it, I'm with you. What, you know, what do I need to do? How do you want me to cut my hair? Do you want me to wear beads? I mean, jumping jacks. What, what you tell me, if you rose from the dead, I'll just do whatever you tell me to do. Because I don't want to die. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to die. I'm not really afraid of death. I'm, I'm just afraid of getting dead. Isn't that the thing? That's really the thing, right? It's not being dead. It's getting dead. That's what we don't want to do that. That scares me. And if a man can die and then come back to life and say, you know, I've been there. I know what that's like. Then I'm, I'm with him. I don't need to hear any sermons. I just, I want to be with him. And you would have abandoned everything you believe too if you really had seen a dead man walking. He says, I'm telling you, I've been to God, I am God, and I'm thinking, sign me up. I, I'm, I'm ready to go. That's the significance of the resurrection for me. Now, this morning, I want to look at a great passage of Scripture. There was a guy back in the day named Luke. He was a doctor, and he was a very meticulous guy, very detailed. Um, and about 30 or 35 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead, Luke went around interviewing people about the life of Christ because nobody really was writing any of this stuff down. And one of the reasons they weren't writing it down is because Jesus had said, hey, I'm going to come back. And so they were like, okay, well, we'll just, we'll just wait. You know, they thought it was going to be a day or two or a couple of weeks or a month. I don't know. But they thought Jesus was coming back pretty soon. And, um, you know, so they didn't go around spreading the news that he's, you know, come back, he's coming back, be ready. They thought, you know, it's going to be any minute. 30-some years go by, and Luke's thinking, you know what, somebody needs to write something down, because we, we got we to gotta make sure we, we get this stuff down for history. So he begins to interview eyewitnesses, people who had walked with Jesus, and people who had talked to him, people who had seen him before his death and after his death. And he gets all this information, and he puts it in this book creatively entitled Luke, and then he decided to go follow the apostles around a little bit. Uh, Jesus is, is gone by now, and, and uh, now you've got these apostles going around and saying things, and, and they're saying that we've seen him, you know, we saw him crucified, we've seen him raised from the dead. So Luke follows these apostles around, and he takes notes on what happened to them, and he puts all that stuff in this book that is called Acts, or what, what used to be known as the Acts of the Apostles. Today we just call it the book of Acts. And so here's all the things that the apostles did after Jesus rose from the dead. So here's what happens. Jerusalem is upside down. The Roman leaders um, have hired the the Pharisees and the religious leaders to keep the people under control, and everything has gone just fine, and then suddenly there's this new eruption, there's this guy that was crucified, and now they're saying that he's up walking around, and thousands of people are transformed, and they're leaving Judaism by by the masses and these religious leaders are losing control that kind of makes rome nervous because rome thinks okay if you don't have control of these people 
We need to talk to who does have control of these people because you have to understand one of the things about Rome was they wanted control. They didn't want any insurrections. They didn't want any rebellion. They didn't want any trouble. They wanted everybody to behave. And so meanwhile, Peter and John, they're like some of the main guys. Um, they've been with Jesus. They are, one day they're on the way to the temple and they're going to pray. And as they go into the temple to pray, they see this guy on the side. And this guy has been lame for 40 years. He's not been able to walk. And uh, they pause briefly. They have a brief conversation with this guy. And they heal him. And, and as he's up walking around, they just go on into the temple to pray. Now you've got a, a dead man that's been up walking around. And now you've got a guy that's been on the ground for 40 years, basically, up and walking around and it's just chaos and people are kind of going crazy so they come to peter and john and, and you know people are beginning to talk to him and peter's trying to explain things and peter's basically saying look don't give us credit for this um jesus christ whom you crucified is the one that is responsible for all this he's the one that healed this guy so with that in mind i want you to look in your bible at, at acts chapter three and we're going to pick up kind of in the middle of a sermon he's preaching away and right in the middle, verse 14 is where we're going to read. We're going to look at those two verses, and then we'll go to Acts chapter 4. Acts 3, verse 14. It says, you, you got to get this picture. He's, he's kind of forceful. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. He's coming on pretty strong. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And then look at this next line. We are witnesses of this. So the central theme in church history was not, hey, love one another. The central theme was, hey, you need to, uh, you know, if your brother does this, then you ought to do this. We're not into parables. We're not into stories. The central message is Jesus rose from the dead. So here's, they're in such an uproar in this, this, this time that, the religious leaders decide, we got to stop this. we got to do something to make sure that, that this doesn't get out of hand. So they go and they have Peter and John arrested, and that's really when the story starts. I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, and the thing that I would tell you about the Sadducees is they did not believe in a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. I know that's corny, but you won't forget it either. You'll be at a party one of these days, and the Sadducees will come up, and you'll say, oh, the Sadducees, well, they didn't even believe in a resurrection. You know, I mean, everybody knows that. That's why they were sad, you see. So the Sadducees, enough, I'll move on. The Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. This is the central message. Verse 3, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who had heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now, you can't just stop with those 5,000 because those 5,000 men, some of those men were married and some of those men had kids. And so now you, you throw in some wives and some children for good measure, it's possible that you've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 people within a period of days who basically said, yeah, I know what my mom and daddy taught me, 
I know what they said, and I know what the religious leaders have said, but I'm telling you, these folks have seen a dead man walking, and I'm with them. I just, I want to sign up, and I'm going to be with them. Overnight, as many as 10, 11, 12, we don't really know how many thousands of people immediately turn and begin to follow Jesus. Now, at this point, you've got to ask yourself the question, why? And as much as I hate to admit this, it wasn't a sermon. It wasn't that they heard some great sermon. These guys have been preaching for three years. You know, where were all these people then? The difference was a dead man was walking. Verse 5, the next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, I want you to listen to the detail. He starts giving you the names of all these people, and you ask yourself, why did he do that? Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. So he's, he's including all this detail because this is history. This is not a myth. This is Luke being very meticulous as the doctor he was to make sure that he got all the facts right. So he's giving you the names of the people that were there. Verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? They were asking, you know, you, you raised this, this guy up and you, he's been lame for his whole life and now all of a sudden he's walking around, he's never been able to walk. How did you do that? Verse 8. Then Peter, and I have this underlined in my Bible, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now let me tell you why that is significant. A few days earlier, Jesus is arrested. You, you, you know this story, and, and there's Peter, and he's kind of warming his hands by the fire. And this fearless Peter, warming his hands by the fire, this girl walks up, and she says, hey, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And he, you know, he mutters, the Bible says that he kind of cursed, and he said, no, I, I, you know, I never knew him. I didn't know him. Now, here's, here's the question. Between the time that this man who was so afraid that he would deny that he even knew Jesus, between that time and the time, the, the time of the story that we just read where he boldly proclaims the message of Jesus, what happened to this man between no, I never knew him, and the man that you crucified is the man by whose, whose name, by whom we have raised this, this person to be able to walk. What happened between the denial and this boldness? And I would just offer to you, it wasn't a sermon. He didn't hear a great sermon and go, okay, that's going to change my life. No. He had seen Jesus crucified and raised again. And suddenly, the coward, suddenly the man who felt threatened, the man who had been insecure, suddenly he is transformed. And what transformed him? He had seen Jesus dead and then alive. And he said, basically, you can arrest me, you can torture me, you can threaten me, but I cannot deny not what I believe. That's not what Peter was deny, was, would say. He'd say, I cannot deny what I have seen and what I have heard. He keeps preaching. He's going on and on. And then look at verse 18. They finally go in, and, and these, these leaders kind of counsel among themselves, and 
they bring Peter and John back in. Verse 18, they called them in again, Peter and John, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have, and I've got this underlined in my Bible, what we have seen and heard. And don't, don't miss this. What Jesus and John and the rest of the apostles as well, but, but let's focus on John and Peter. Peter and John did not face torture and eventually death because of what they believed. It's, it's an important distinction to, to make. You know, there are a lot of martyrs, there are a lot of people who die for what they believe. That is not unique. That has happened for centuries past where people said, you know, this is what I believe and I'm going to die for what I believe. Peter and John, in this passage and others, they didn't lay down their lives and face all kinds of persecution because of what they believed. They faced persecution and eventually gave their lives because of what they had seen and what they had heard. And that's huge. That sets us apart as Christians from every other world religion in a very significant way. They went down as martyrs not simply because they believed something strongly. You know, how can I deny, what they were saying is, how can I deny after what I have seen and what I have heard? The church fathers who wrote about Peter and wrote about the apostles, they talk about how Peter died. Um, You know, they were going to crucify Peter, so the story goes, and he said, I'm not worthy to be, to be crucified like my Lord was crucified. You know, I'm, I'm, that's the way my Lord was crucified. I don't, I'm not worthy to even have that done to me. And the, the religious leaders, um, the tradition has it that the religious leaders said, we can fix that. And they turned him upside down. And the tradition is that Peter was, was crucified upside down. Uh, John, they basically just looked at John and said, we're going to put you on this island and we're just going to leave you there to rot, okay? We, we're not interested in you uh, doing anything else. And, and these men never recanted. How could they? How do you say it's not true? Not, not what I believe. I mean, it would be easy to say, okay, I don't believe that anymore. That would be easy. But when you've seen it, you've seen it. When you've heard it, you've heard it. You know, we jokingly use the phrase, you can't unsee that. Have you ever been joking with somebody and they do something silly or they, you know, and you, you go, oh, I, you know, I can't unsee that. I'll never be able to unsee that. Well, you think about it. There are some things in your world that you'll never be able to unsee. I mean, who in here can remember where they were when they saw the Challenger blow up? You remember that? Yeah, you'll never be able to unsee that. You saw that with your eyes and you could close your eyes right now and see that image in your mind. When, you know, you probably remember where you were when, when you saw for the first time the image of a plane flying into a tower and a tower coming down. You know, you, you can't unsee that. That's something that when you see it, it's like, Brett, you can tell me that that didn't happen. You can tell me that that didn't exist. But I saw it with my own eyes. I, I saw that happen. And once I saw it, I can't unsee it. Our faith rises and falls not on a teaching but on one event that was so pivotal, pivotal and so transformational that these men became what they became. Then you come to verse 32. <laughs> they finally decide they're going to let Peter and John go, and they get ready to release them. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. 
Okay, so now you've got thousands of these folks that have decided to be Christians running around. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, you've got to ask yourself the question, how do thousands of people suddenly change what they believe and what they're going to do and what they're going to stake their life on? And how are these thousands of people so moved by that that we would read a sentence like that about them? No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had because they thought Jesus was coming back any day. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. See, the message wasn't love one another. The message wasn't, you know, vine and branches and abide in me and all. Hey, John, tell them the one about um, these two brothers and one of the brothers leaves and one brother stays and he gets mad. No, it wasn't that. It was Jesus rose from the dead. That was their message. And it changed the lives of the people around them and it changed them forever. See, everything rises and falls And just as it was the foundation of their faith, the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. Everything we believe, everything we do, hinges on this one, not belief, not sermon, not insight, not philosophy, but on this one event in history. In the longest passage of scripture about the resurrection, the Apostle Paul says in no uncertain terms, this comes out of 1 Corinthians 15, And if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless. To which we would say, oh no, Paul, your your preaching wasn't useless. Your preaching was really helpful to to my wife and I. And Paul would say, no, 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 (laughs) no. No, Paul, you can't say that because that thing that you did on, on children obey your parents in the Lord, I mean, that's, Paul, that's been really helpful for our family. And Paul would say, no, no, you don't get it. If Jesus has not been raised, it doesn't matter how practical the teaching is. It doesn't matter if it works for you. It doesn't matter if it's helpful. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In other words, Paul would say, you're living a lie. What are you doing? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The resurrection isn't something that we tack on for a nice neat package at the end of the story. That's not why we talk about the resurrection. The resurrection is what ignited a fire in the disciples and the apostles. Men and women who went out and changed the world by talking about what they had seen and what they had heard. And Paul says, I'm telling you, this is really crucial. That if this, this is so crucial that if this one event is not true, if this one thing didn't happen, Everything collapses in on it because our faith, unlike everyone else's faith, rests not on the teachings of a man, it rests not on the teachings of a prophet, but on an event in history. Now, there's a practical side to this too. Because you see, the resurrection is not only the foundation of our faith, the the, the resurrection is the foundation of our faithfulness. What do I mean by that? The reason that I am to be committed to Christ. The reason that I would say, hey, you know, when it works, I'm in, and when it doesn't work, I'm in. I'm following you, Jesus, it doesn't matter. The reason that you and I are to follow Christ with a passion and a commitment, even when it goes beyond what's convenient for us, is because Jesus rose from the dead. You see, at the end of this passage, when Paul gets to the application and the punchline, here's what he says. 
Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. This is, you know, he's been talking about the resurrection. And so when he says, therefore, he's like, okay, since the resurrection is true, stand firm, let nothing move you. When? Always. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That is, when it's convenient, you stay faithful. When it's inconvenient, you stay faithful. When it works out for you, stay faithful. When it's not working for you, stay faithful. When there are rewards coming your way in some way because of it, you stay faithful. And when it seems like everything else has just gone south, you stay faithful. Because the foundation of our faith is not that it works practically, although we think that it does. The foundation is a dead man came back to life and validated the fact that he was the son of God. That's why we believe what we believe, and that's why we do what we do. And that's the number one reason we're to stand firm, because Jesus is the Son of God, because Jesus is the Christ. You see, as long as you're faithful because it works, there's going to come a day that it won't work. There's going to come a day where you're going to look at your faith and you're going to say, you know what, my faith is not working in this particular situation. See, the reason it works and the reason we love Christianity is because we live in America. And we're able to exercise our faith with relative ease. There really are not a lot of restrictions put on us like there are in other parts of the world. But there are other parts of the world where it wouldn't look like your faith was working out very well. Because we would not have the freedoms to work it. And into that culture, he said, stand firm. Be immovable. Why? Not because of an insight, not because of a sermon, but because Jesus rose from the dead. We've seen it, we've heard it, and it's true, and that makes it powerful. So, do you know why Jesus rose? He rose to validate, to basically to verify his identity and to validate our faith. That's why Jesus rose. He rose so that you could believe what you believe, and you could believe it with great strength and great power. We believe because Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead to verify his identity. I told you, I am who I said I am, and he, and he did it to validate our faith. That he would basically look at us and say, you can believe in me with great integrity and know that what I said was true because I backed it up with the resurrection. And here's the end. If, if you're a Christian, you know, they ought to have to hose us down. We're so excited about our faith those of us who are Christians. The reason we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday instead of every Saturday, because they used to celebrate, they used to come together to meet for church on Saturday. And just think about this for a minute. We celebrate on the day that Jesus arose. We have been celebrating and meeting together as a church on Sundays for 2,000 years. We can't really even appreciate this, but when you start to think about the fact that thousands of Jewish people who were taught to respect the Sabbath, which was Saturday, they basically said, hey, let's change our worship service to Sunday, which for them would be like us going from Sunday to Monday. I mean, um, what would it take for us to change meeting in church on Sundays to meeting in church on Mondays? What if I came in here one time and I said, okay, um, from now on, we're just going to meet on, on Mondays. You would look at me and you'd say, well, Brett, duh, we work on Monday. We got to go to work. And I would say, no, we're going we're gonna to meet on Monday night. 
That's basically what happened to these people. Um, they met on Sunday night because Sunday was the first day of the week for them. And, and everybody else was working. Now, why? ask yourself this question. Why would thousands of Jewish people overnight shift their day of worship? Because they had seen a dead man come back to life. It wasn't a sermon. It wasn't an insight. It was an event in history, and it radically transformed their culture overnight. And here's what I would say in closing. If you're not a Christian, you, I would strongly urge you to continue to think about what does it mean that this man rose from the dead, and what implications are there for me personally in my spiritual life? You know, don't say, but Jesus said this, and this prophet said that, and he's a teacher in this book. Don't, don't say that. Come on, you got to get beyond that, and you got to press down to the place where you start asking yourself, what do I believe about a man who was dead and rose from the dead? And what does that say, and what does it demand of me in my life? See, here's the thing. At the end of the day, we talk an awful lot around here about the crucifixion. We talk about the fact that Jesus died for our sins and that we're forgiven, and that's beautiful, okay? That's beautiful. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you've never given your life to Christ, let me take just a second to explain to you what this is about and what it's not about. Because, he, see, here's what people think. People think, well, if I go to church, I can't really go to church because I'm not as good as them. Or you'll hear this, I don't want to go to church because they think they're better than me. Here's what I would say to you this morning. No one in here thinks they're better than you. No one in here thinks they're better than you. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, all these people are really good people and I have no business being in this room, you need to understand you have, <laughs> you have every much right to be in this room as any other one of us because here's what I'll tell you about everybody that you can look at this morning. Everybody in this place is broken. Everybody in this place needs the blood of Jesus. Everybody in this place needs to be forgiven. See, it's not about how good you are. You'd say, Brett, I can't, I can't give my life to Christ. You don't know what I did last night. I don't care what you did last night. Brett, I'm never going to be able to get to go to heaven. You just don't know what I've done in my life. Listen, I'm going to tell you this. I may, hopefully I'm not the only guy that you ever hear this from, but if, hopefully you hear it this morning. Your going to heaven has nothing to do with how good you are. To say that another way, your salvation is not performance-based. Your salvation hinges solely on the grace and mercy of a God who would send his son to die on a cross for you. That son was perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice. And because of that, forgiveness is offered to you. So what you're being offered this morning, if you're not a Christian, here's what it's about. It's not about how good you are. It's about, are you forgiven? Have you ever received Christ and been forgiven? That's what you're being offered this morning. I pray that you would think about that. I pray that you'd want to search somebody out and talk about that a little bit. But it all comes back to Jesus rose from the dead. He is our Savior. And we have a hope and an eternity. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we just stop and tell you thank you. We thank you for the death of Jesus, but beyond that, Lord, I thank you that he got up. I thank you that he rose again because it is that that gives me hope and it is that that makes me excited. Because anybody can die for me. 
It's not hard to die for somebody. What's really difficult is to lay your life down and then to take it up again. And that's what you did. So, Father, this morning, we celebrate that fact. We have a hope, the hope of eternity, and we have a hope of being with you all because of Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray.